I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and it's hard to feel dignified if you're slipping through the cracks while so much attention is on such issues as climate change gun violence and economic inequality there's a somewhat hidden though very large group of people young americans not much talked about who are feeling lost and disconnected Perhaps you know some young person who fits this description between the ages of 16 and 24 whose introduction to adulthood feels like dead ends and prematurely broken dreams. They find themselves disconnected from school, work, and family. And for many, it seems like at that moment when traditionally life can get exciting and productive and meaningful, instead it screeches to a halt. In her new book, Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection, our guest author Ann Kim peels back the hidden issue and enables us to start to address the problem by first seeing what it is and then looking at what has been shown to effectively address it. Using the new field of research into adolescent brain science as well as what is uh, known sociologically and the economic costs we're now paying, Kim argues that emerging adulthood is just as crucial a development period as early childhood. That's kind of news to me. And Kim is a writer, lawyer, and public policy expert with a long career in Washington, D.C.-based think tanks working in and around Capitol Hill. My sympathies. She is also a contributing editor at Washington Monthly, where she was a senior writer. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Governing, TheAtlantic.com, and Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. Her new book is titled Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of disconnection. And Kim, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me, Bert. How did you come to write this book? What was the need for it? Who's the uh, target audience? Well, um, I've been writing about poverty, social policy, economic opportunity for a long time, and I cannot pretend to have discovered this problem. It has been a problem that's actually been known in policy circles for at least the past 20 years, but really hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. And there have been any number of nonprofits that have been working with young people for decades who have also had their work relatively unheralded, unrecognized. And the purpose of this book is to elevate this issue and really elevate also the work of these amazing organizations that have been doing so much for this really invisible population of young people. There are four and a half million young adults between the ages of 16 and 24, who are not in school and not working. And these are young people who have really fallen off the radar of the national conversation about inequality, opportunity, and you know what it means for the future of our country. That is a large number of people, four and a half million people, you say. That's, it's, it's kind of surprising. How is it that you know, it, it stayed uh, under the radar for so long? I mean, just because there's so many well, other issues? 
Right. There, there is that, but there's also a problem of measurement. You know, the numbers that I use in the book actually come from a um, nonprofit called the uh, Social Science Research Council's Measure of America project. There are other countries around the world. The United Kingdom is one that uh, monitors the share of young adults who are out of school and out of work. In the U.K., they're called NEAT, not in employment, education, and training. And every month, couple months or so, the uh, British government will put out a report that says, here's our percentage of NEATs. In that way, they're able to focus governmental resources on the issue of youth unemployment and out-of-school, out-of-work youth. We don't do the same thing in the United States. If you go on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website or you go on the Census Bureau website, you can plug in you know, disconnected youth or out-of-school, out-of-work youth. It's not part of our official employment data. So as far as uh, the national conversation is concerned, it's not even really an issue. You know, the group of workers that you see on BLS is like 18 to 65 as a single monolithic group of yeah. workers. And the reality is that that's not the case. Curious that, that the U.K. has recognized it well before we did. I, I, how, how do you explain that? Well, you know, there is actually a pretty important report that was uh, put out in 1999 uh, when they had begun to discover youth unemployment as a rising problem. And actually, globally, uh, it's been recognized as a serious problem around the world. The global youth unemployment rate is actually about 13%. And the OECD also keeps track of this needs figure, not in education, unemployment, or training. Uh, we're kind of an outlier, just like, you know, the United States is one of the few countries without, you know, a paid leave. We're, we're behind on many measures of uh, mm. how we treat our workers and ensure that everyone has the opportunity to get ahead. It's just one indicator of another indicator of a place where the United States needs to keep up with our European and, and global counterparts. And, and I think, you know, looking at this book, uh, it's not a question of altruism and being nice to these young people ages 16 to 24. We all pay a very large economic cost. And, and I can imagine people saying, oh, you know, let these people just pull themselves up for the bootstraps. I sure did. And, you know, if, if people don't have kids, for example, why should they care? Yes, yeah, you have raised a number of great issues in that question, Bert. Let me uh, take a step sure. back and, and take, take them, them one by one. Yep. Um, the first question you raise about the total societal cost, uh, this is why I think that addressing this problem is a bipartisan issue that we should uh -huh. appeal to everyone, regardless of who you are. Uh, the fiscal burden is enormous. There was one study that was done out of Columbia University that estimated that the total lifetime cost of a disconnected young person remaining a disconnected older person can be as high as $700,000 in total social burden. But $200,000 of that might be direct costs for, say, they become homeless, or they're incarcerated, or it's for welfare, or for Medicaid, social supports. And then there are larger societal burdens, social burdens, and uh, add, up, add into that the lost tax revenue from someone who is not working point, yeah. and paying taxes and contributing to society. If we put in a couple, you know, thousand dollars today, we'll reap the benefits mm. of their contributions to society and avoid all these costs down <laughs> the line. The second piece of what you said about the bootstrap myth, 
one of the um, misperceptions, I think, that I really wanted to address with this book was this notion that young adults who may be in dire straits are where they are because they have made, quote, poor life choices or they lack, quote, personal responsibility. The reality is today that the structure of opportunity is really stacked against a lot of young people. Who you are is not as important sometimes as where you are, who your parents are, what's around you. A phrase I heard a lot from both young people and the advocates who work with them is, you know, what you see is what you'll be. And if you're not in a part of the country where there are educational opportunities open to you or jobs, then your choices are very limited. And the best decisions that you make still may not pan out if the structural barriers are so high you cannot overcome them. Wow, interesting. What you see is is what you be. And uh, I was in, uh, I mean, every now and then I talk politics with friends. I know, what a big surprise. But uh, <laughs> in, in south-central Pennsylvania, which is real Trump country, I was trying to figure out, these people are not doing real great. And yet, I, I think it's partially that, you know, they kind of give up and want something uh, really radical to shake things up. And it ends up, you know, hurting themselves, quite frankly. But, uh, you know, people don't know what to do. I mean, here it is. As you say, there's this structure uh, that's, uh, that's just, it's not there. And maybe it used to be. You know, I, I wonder, you know, I have this impression of the 1950s in particular when Eisenhower was president, that lefty uh, Eisenhower, that uh, we had a large middle class and, and working class people, and people could kind of, young people could look at their parents working in, say, Detroit, for example, and count on jobs being there. But that's not, it's just not right. the case anymore. Right. No, no, it's absolutely right. What's happening with young adults is just part of this larger uh, set of trends, I think, about what's happening with the economy and where the opportunity is headed and who gets those opportunities. Yes. You know, in the 50s, all you needed was a high school diploma. Right. And there's a factory down the street who would be who could hire you and give you a living wage job. Now what you need to become a, a self-sufficient individual is to have not only more education but the right kind of education and be living in the right kind of place uh, where you can get the right kind of job with the right kind of connections. And part of what I chronicle in the book, too, is that this road to adulthood has really lengthened over the last generation or so, in part Mm. because that preparation into successful adulthood requires so much more investment on the part of families and communities. You know, this is, parents bemoan having the young person in their basement uh, living with them when they're going to school or when they come back, but that has become a really crucial part of laying the foundation for someone to be successful as you go as you go on in life. The problem is that there are millions of young adults who don't have the backstop of their parents to fall back on, yes. either to help them pay for school or to have a basement to live in, um, or to provide that social and emotional support so they can get help finding that first job or that first internship. And it's really that divergence in young adulthood experiences that are widening the inequality that we are now seeing. And it's kind of an underappreciated factor, I think, in driving inequality that no one is talking about. 
Well, it is a complex and challenging issue, and it's and it's bigger than we realize. I mean, we have so many issues now, but that is a it is a big one. And I'll tell you, as, as a father of two young adult kids, I know lots of parents have what they call failure to launch kids. Yeah. They're living at home. And as you say, it's tempting to point out some poor individual choices, which is sometimes the case. But talk about, if you would, the, a little bit more of the primary forces at work, which are so vast and structural. Is it that the nature of work is changing? I mean, uh, Andrew Yang talked about that, I thought, very effectively during his campaign that you know, the jobs of the future, we're not even close to there yet. So where does that put this four and a half million young people? It potentially puts them even further behind. Uh, um, I, I, mean, I think that our educational system needs a lot of catching up to do no. to um, make workers, our future workers, more resilient and able to deal with the change that is coming. Uh-huh. You know, it simply isn't enough to know your three R's, you know, your reading, writing, arithmetic. Right. You know, you've got to know, you've got to be able to problem solve. You have to have critical thinking skills. You have to have social emotional skills. None of these things are really being addressed by many schools, even excellent schools. But then you still have many schools uh, in different parts of the country that aren't even managing to do the basics either. <laughs> So the young people who are caught in that circumstance where they are doubly disadvantaged in an educational system that is not teaching them the basics nor giving them the skills to get the kind of jobs that Andrew Yang and others are saying are coming in the future, we're really leaving behind a gigantic proportion of young people if we cannot prepare them. So, yes, work is changing. There's no question that a post-secondary credential of some kind mm-hmm. is going to be necessary for people to succeed. We've gotten away from uh, thinking about alternative pathways into that post-secondary world and really focused on having the four-year degree, the four-year degree, the four-year degree. Right. The fact of the matter is that the majority of Americans still don't have that four-year degree. And we have to think about what are some other pathways that are equally valid and equally likely to get someone a living wage career that might be right for some young people. But we've closed too many doors uh, before, and we don't even open others in this very narrow view of what we've um, come to see as K-12 education right now. That is so for sure. And as, uh, you know, in in a lot of what I would call middle America, uh, the pressure is on schools to cut Cut, cut, cut. There's been a pressure from, I think, the, you know, the more right wing of the Republican Party for 40 years to cut funding for public education and to do away with, you know, excess. All they want is the three R's. And, you know, who is that serving? It, you know, art is not uh, something you can do away with. Music is important for thinking, as I'm sure you know. You know, it helps you, pe- you organize your thoughts. And critical thinking. It seems there's such a a disregard for the importance of critical thinking. Uh, How has education changed with regard to those things? It's changing. There's a long way to go. Part of the problem is that we don't exactly know, I don't think, how to measure 
whether someone is a good critical thinker or not. There's reams of academic research about this right now, but um, no clear. And I'm not sure that you want to create the same kind of no child left behind standards and rigid testing around these kind of, you know, more intangible traits. But you, you do want, everyone knows, everyone says they can see it, a resilient person, um, who can think on their feet. Here's one thing that's different about manufacturing, for instance, talking about the way sure. manufacturing has changed. There are many, many manufacturing jobs, advanced manufacturing jobs that are going unfilled, a couple million mm. uh, over the next decade or so. And that's because the educational level that's required for advanced manufacturing job is so much higher than it was a generation ago. People are needing to replace to repair the robots. They're not. They're, they've replaced the manual workers with robots, and now they're looking for people who can work with the robots. And that requires some sort of post-secondary credential. And that's what the schools are not producing. So that's a very concrete example of the gap in where our education system is and where the workforce and where employers are looking. And you know, we we like to believe that. Uh, you know, private enterprise can address most problems. If private enterprise, as you say, you know, if they're lacking the workers with the right skills to, you know, tune up the robots, for example, uh, is the the private sectors, are they uh, jumping up, are they uh, stepping up to the plate, as it were? And do they need incentive to do so? Maybe they do. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's uh, it's a good news, bad news story. Um, until relatively recently, there has actually been a, quite a bit of disinvestment in worker training by the private sector at large. There's quite a bit of research around that. Uh, one benefit of a tighter labor market for incumbent workers is that this so-called skills gap has become much more acute for employers, and so they are beginning to invest again in trying to build the workers that they need because they can't find them. Um, so you are starting to see a few more training programs aimed at uh, getting the kind of skilled workers that you need, particularly in manufacturing, for instance. There's a really interesting program called um, Federation for Advanced Manufacturing Education that's mm-hmm. in 20 states or so that's run by the Manufacturing Institute. It's a terrific apprentice-style program uh-huh. uh, that's bringing in high school students and building that connection from college, from school to community college to career. And I think that's actually the kind of approach that we need to see more of. Mm-hmm. But that's a relatively small program so far, a relatively small number of employers. If every employer were stepping up to the plate, we would not have 4.5 million young people out of school and out of work. Well, they, of course, they have their own you know, budgets to, to work on that are usually pretty tight. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Ann Kim, who's written a uh, thoughtful uh, book, Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. And and you mentioned apprenticeships. You know, as a, as a student of history, and uh, I will say that with my uh, uh, college degree in, in European uh, intellectual history, I drove a truck for a few years. You know, you got to... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's it was tough way back then. It's a lot tougher now. What about apprenticeships? That used to be a big, big part, you know, ever since the Middle Ages. Uh, and uh, I don't know if the jobs today still can, uh, and for the future, uh, promote apprenticeships. What about that as an aspect to reaching some of these uh, abandoned 
young people. I would think there might be some opportunities there. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. Apprenticeships really have fallen out of favor. Uh, there's been some renewed interest in apprenticeships, uh, including by this administration, and a few states like South Carolina uh, have really stepped it up in terms of promoting in, uh, apprenticeships. Uh, but it really only reaches a tiny fraction of young people at this point. And I think part of the problem is perceptions around what apprenticeships are. Middle-class mm. parents are not sure are ready to have their high-performing child embrace an apprenticeship uh. instead of going to a four-year school. Interesting. Yeah, it's probably sort of a foreign concept to them. Right, uh, right. Uh. Right. And actually, manufacturer, you know, employers I've spoken to in the manufacturing space, you know, when they tell parents, you can go into advanced manufacturing and you can be a 20-year-old making six figures and earn an, an associate's degree in this apprenticeship program that we have while you work, their eyes just open wide. Like, really? And you can get a bachelor's degree, too, which is possible with the same program that I was talking about. And this whole new world opens up. But there is a perception that apprenticeships are for a certain type of student and that manufacturing is still, you know, dangerous or dirty um, and doesn't require an education. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different kind of conversation about what uh, advanced manufacturing today looks like, but it does mean that a lot of young people might be turning their backs on an opportunity Mm. that could be right for them. Huh, very interesting. Yeah, things really have changed. So uh, just just in terms of numbers, I mean, there's so much to look at with regard to this topic. About what percent of disconnected youth live below the poverty line compared to the population as a whole? And I'm reminded of the old phrase, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And you think about kids uh, who, you know, inner city uh, stereotypes, shall we say, where there's just no jobs and no transportation to get to the jobs. And, you know, they turn to what they can to uh, to get some money in their pockets. So about what percentage of this disconnected youth population live below the poverty line compared to the population as a whole? Right. I mean, one of the stereotypes, I think, about this population is that we're only talking about uh, young people in, ur- in urban areas. Right. One of the surprises from Measure America and others who've done youth con- disconnection surveys is that the disconnection rate is actually much higher in rural areas. And when you think about it, it makes sense because there's much less uh, economic opportunity in rural areas these days than in a big city. Uh, New Hampshire is fortunate that the na- that their, the statewide disconnection rate where you are is lower than the national average by a little bit. But um, when you go up into the upper western, upper part of the state, Coons, Coos County, uh, the disconnection Co-ass. there is 14%. <laughs> and if you go over the state border into Maine, you're looking at um, about the same percentages and in some places as high as one in five. Um, so geo- geography really matters quite yes. a bit. And this population is very challenged. About one in three are, are living in poverty. Whoa. One in five are living in rural areas compared to one in six in urban centers. Well, that is tough, and we do reach uh, all over the country. There's a station in Baton Rouge that's playing the show, and uh, it's, it goes uh, everywhere. And the problem, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that you point out that the, that the rural areas, sort of the flyover areas, you know, if, as described politically, that there's some significant problems there. There's not a lot going on. As I say, you know, when I visit my daughter in south-central Pennsylvania, 
there's not a lot going on. I mean, farms are dying there, but relocating businesses there is, you know, uh, I, well, there's things that the private uh, sector can do and private and the things that the uh, public sector can do. Uh, what about what the public sector can do? Let's We'll go back and forth on this. Yes, so the biggest thing, we do, we do know what works. You know, um, I devote about a third of the book to some promising programs that serve well to connect and reconnect young people to both school and to work, but we dramatically underinvest in these programs. Uh, just to give a little bit of perspective, in um, the last fiscal year, fiscal year 2019, uh, the federal budget was about $2.5 billion on programs for disconnected young people. Mm-hmm. So our overall federal budget is $3.7 trillion. So we spend $2.5 billion on programs for disconnected youth. We spend $582 billion on defense. We spend mm-hmm. way more on... Um, seniors with Social Security than we do on young people. That's true generally for all programs. But what we are spending on this very critical population is a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. And it wouldn't take that much more, because these programs are not that expensive, to reach, say, Hmm. a million of those four and a half million who need someone to give them a second chance to reconnect with school and work. Oh, interesting. So where, while we're on the, the topic of that, what has shown to be a good investment to to ad- actually address this problem? And uh, I mean, there's so many different aspects of it. Tell us about some of those positive ways out. Yes. So different young people need different approaches and depending upon why they're disconnected. One of the challenges in writing this book is that there are many paths to disconnection. I would say that there are three uh, major drivers when it comes to public policy failures that lead someone uh, to be cut off from the mainstream of opportunity. The child welfare system is one very tragic example. Uh, The criminal justice system is another where we adultify um, young people when we really don't need to. The educational system is a third And I guess you could kind of throw in there a little bit of what we were talking about before in terms of geography. Um, When there isn't enough public investment in rural areas to bring jobs, upskill the workforce, there's really nowhere and nothing for, as you mentioned, for young people to do. So when you take into account kind of those four big public policy failures, you have four different reasons why someone may be. And, And, you know, a lot of people are involved in a lot of these things. At the same time, you have foster youth who are involved oh, in the criminal justice system because they don't have the education to, to get ahead. One intervention that I think is really helpful, I profile a program called um, Cases in uh, New York City, and they are a diversion program for nonviolent young offenders, you know, marijuana possession, that kind of thing. So they are not sent into a detention facility or, in, worst of all, an adult jail. Um, instead, the, they work with the courts so that what these young people get is a second chance at getting a high school diploma or a GED, uh, job training, mental health services, and other supports, because a lot of these young people don't have family to help them through whatever challenges may have led them to get mixed up on the wrong side of the law in the first place. 
And what I found in speaking to some of these young people who have, you know, gone through cases and been through it, they actually keep coming back to this program because you look at the counselors they met there as a surrogate family. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the hallmarks of a very effective program is when you have alumni who really feel connected to the mentors and the um, guidance that they got there. But, you know, this is a fairly large program. There are many others exactly like it, many of them struggling to survive because we are so underfunded and underinvested in programs to help young people like this. Boy, that certainly does seem to be the case. And and, and talk about that cases uh, group uh, in New York, which I assume is must be state-funded because it's not federal. And there's the sort of heartening story of Nazir, who uh, keeps on coming, even though he completed his court-ordered time at cases. And when you talk about, you know, sort of being part of the family, I can imagine people on the right saying, what, a nanny state? Are we supposed to be a nanny state? And they get all macho about that. <laughs> how, would you, how would you speak to somebody who's, who said, oh, this is nanny state stuff. This is no good. We don't need this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, two responses. First, I would go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about the cost effectiveness of investing in a young person. And because uh, you're going to save a lot of money down the road. If you're a conservative, you've got to see the dollars and cents in that. Uh, number two, you know, we're not, these are all voluntary programs. You know, they are for young people who want to get ahead but don't have the resources at home yeah. or just don't have the knowledge because they're kids to figure out how they're going to um, go to school when they're homeless or how they're going to get through um, what they need to get through if there's another young woman in, in, that I talked to who's three months pregnant and she's facing homelessness, potentially. Mm. She's a part-time job. She's living in New York. She needs. She's going to need a lot of resources and she's only in her early 20s she's going to need a lot of resources to pull through if you don't want her to become a permanent uh-huh. public charge uh-huh. of the state. That's not nanny state at all. That's empowering someone and it to seems like become self-sufficient. A wise investment, for sure. And, uh, you know, you talk about uh, disconnected. And as we all know, those of us who managed to come through adolescence and early adulthood, it's always difficult years. Your, your term disconnected, is that pretty much clearly definable? And is how, how is it different now from, you know, throughout most of the 20th century? And the term disconnected, say more about that, if you please, and how it's different now from how, you know, it's always been tough for kids. It, it always, yes, it has been tough for kids. I think what's, what is different is that the runway into adulthood has changed. Um, there are differing definitions for who disconnected are by age. Is it 16 to 24? Is it just 20 to 24? Is it 18 to 24? It's one of the reasons why it would be nice to see the um, government, now that we're about to do the 2020 census, take an interest in these young workers who are starting out on their careers and define who this population is so that we can um, see the full scope of the problem and target some more resources that way. What's changed is that, coming back to the myth of the bootstraps, right, connection, we're talking about connection here, 
is about connection to institutions, connection to a school, connection to an employer, but it's also about connections to community and connections to networks. I think one of the things that we really take for granted is the network of opportunity that each of us has access to by dint of the education we have, by the people we know. Um, Platforms like LinkedIn depend Mm. on people's connections to someone else. There is a really famous study that was done in 1973 by a researcher named Mark Granovetter, and the study was titled The Strength of Weak Ties. And he distinguished between what he called strong ties, that, uh, which are the bonds you have with really close family and close friends, and what he called weak ties, which are the relationships you have with acquaintances and friends of friends. The counterintuitive conclusion that he drew was that your weak ties are stronger in terms of economic advancement. Uh-huh. You are actually more likely to get a job from a friend of a friend because they are bridges to, op- of, to networks that you do not have access to now, um, then you are to hear about a job from someone who's very close to you. And I think sure. every one of us can think of an example oh, where they yeah. heard about an opportunity from a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, right? Absolutely. But if you're a young person who doesn't have any foothold into any of these networks, or if you don't have parents who have any foothold into any of these networks, and these networks have become so much more important, where do you begin? How do you get access to mainstream opportunity? Wow, it is kind of a, a spiral downward, or it can be. Uh, wh- what about, and you know, as you describe this, these young people, 16 to 24, who feel kind of left out that, you know, they're not being heard, and there's this real disconnection. I have to tell you, it does seem that that is driving a lot of the Bernie young movement. People feel like, the young, I mean, young people are very much enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders, and may I? There's some sort of connection, just whether or not the candidate, you know, is whatever they project on it, but just the connectedness, feeling connected, you know, like sort of a tribe almost, you know. And people, I think, need to feel some sort of larger tribe that's not just, you know, your family of origin. But, uh, you know, in, in unity there is strength, and just bringing people together. Maybe that's uh, underneath a lot of what's uh, going on because, I don't know, somehow he's paying attention to young people. I'll tell you, I've been to some Bernie rallies and there's so many young people. It's kind of exciting and, <laughs> you know, I still have to wonder about that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of anxiety yes. about how much harder it has to uh, succeed and there's a lot of uncertainty about how you succeed and the barriers, even for middle class and upper middle class young oh, people, yeah. seem a lot higher than they were a generation ago. Yeah. Um, not sure if parents want to be supporting their young adult oh. children way into their 20s. True. The Federal Reserve says that <laughs> one out of three young people, um, 18 to 24, is still getting help with their bills from mom and dad. Um, but it's become a fact of life that you're going to need your parents for longer and your parents are going to have to support you for longer if you're a young adult. And that has to be some measure of frustration here because oh, yeah. the path used to be so much more straightforward and so much easier uh, a generation ago. And we're in this in-between phase where there's so much uncertainty now and even more change coming. So someone who is as forceful as Senator Sanders is certainly can speak to that uncertainty and offer some answers. You may mm-hmm. or may not disagree with right, them, but... Right. 
that's what he's offering, certainty. And certainly uh, a lot of uh, parents of people in this age group, you know, politically liberal or not, you know, they, they want the kids to leave the nest already, you know. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a, a hard challenge to, to see that maybe the runway is longer because it's not what we grew up with. It's not expected. What about, uh, oh, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, America's lost youth and the crisis of disconnection in Ann Kim's new book, Abandoned. And we're speaking with uh, author Ann Kim. What about young men and women? You know, you mentioned that urban and rural, it's like more of a problem in rural areas. I wonder if you could compare overall situations regarding uh, disconnectedness, women, men. So the figures from the uh, the Measure America uh, Measure of America project, Social Science Research Council, show that the share of disconnection between men and women is actually fairly equal. Young men are slightly more likely to be disconnected than young women. The young women who are uh, out of school and out of work tend to be uh, young parents, and there is unfortunately a high percentage of of institutionalization, whether that's incarceration or another kind of institutional setting that is prevalent among young men. And that does bring an un, a really tragic case of, the, of racialization around um, disconnected young people as well. If you're African-American, if you're a person of color, you are twice as likely to be out of school and out of work. You are much less likely to be in an environment where there's opportunity open to you one of the places I profile in the book is um, a neighborhood called Sandtown in the heart of Baltimore. Baltimore, in uh, many respects, is actually doing very well. You know, there's a new Amazon facility not too far away from there. There's Under Armour. Uh, but if you go to Sandtown, you will literally see blocks and blocks and blocks of boarded-up buildings. Um, people... Once in a while, you know, groups of not groups of people on street corners. Uh, public transportation, uh, people who live there have to commute like two hours within mm-hmm. the city because the bus services are so unreliable. Right. If you're a young person growing up in Sandtown, you don't have a lot of options to you. And a lot of it is the legacy of segregation and mm-hmm. deliberate redlining and mm-hmm. deliberate housing policies that... Um, put the city's African-American population into extremely dire circumstances, and purposefully so. Oh, All yes. of this structural racism needs to be undone if we want to really tackle the underlying problems of disconnection in places like Sandtown in Baltimore. Yeah, it is continually impressive to me how structural systemic racism is just at the root of so many problems. And it's, you're right, it's intentional. I do get a little bit angry about that, I will say. Uh, So we talked a little bit about foster care, and there are federal laws requiring states to make sure that every young person in foster care does have a transitional plan in place when they age out of foster care. Why do so many people fall between the cracks of foster care and independence? This uh, requirement of a transitional plan is uh, something that appears to more exist on paper Uh, than in reality. uh If it were real, then the outcomes for foster youth who, quote-unquote, age out of foster care wouldn't be quite 
as dire as they are. We have about 20,000 young people who leave the foster care system every year because they are turning 18 or in some states 21. Uh The official term for this is that they are, quote, emancipated, which is a very ironic term given that uh, it's more like abandonment, not emancipation. Emancipation implies something positive. But what actually happens to these young people is that a third of them will end up homeless, a third of them will end up incarcerated, only about half will ever get a GED or high school diploma, and only about 8% are going to have a two-year degree or a four-year degree by the time they're age 26, and fewer than half are also going to be employed. That is not emancipation, but it is a gigantic problem surrounding the child welfare system, which desperately needs reform from top to bottom. And the biggest irony here is that the child welfare system, a system that is supposed to have at its purpose the protection of child well-being, is turning out young adults who are anything but in good shape. Wow. Okay. There we go. Well, that's that's a, uh, a place to recognize and to, to start from. Another thing to recognize, of course, is the American, uh, you know, criminal justice system, mass incarceration. It's it hurts yes. so many people and their families. It's finally coming into view, I think. I mean, it's just like barely uh, on a given day in America. About how many kids are housed in adult jails and prisons? And what about the raise the age campaigns that are, you know, starting to address that? So. Incarceration is absolutely catastrophic for young persons' chances of succeeding uh, once they are out in adult life. We'll just start there. You know, fewer than 10% of facilities, according to the Justice Policy Institute, will provide any sort of services to help a young person, you know, get educational services or train for a job. And these are the prime years when other kids are going to college, community college, or finishing high school. You're more likely to be assaulted. Um, One consequence is that you are going to be very likely to re-offend. About 80% of young people who are incarcerated end up re-incarcerated within two to three years. Mm. And a lot of these are kids. You asked about the number of kids who are in adult prisons. Kara Drennan, a researcher I quote in the book, says about 10,000 kids are in adult prisons at any given time, and over the course of a year, about 100,000 will spend some time in adult facilities. Overall, you know, um, hmm. young adults take up a disproportionate share of the city's jail, city's jail populations. So just for an example, in New York City, 18 to 24-year-olds are less than 10% of the population, but they are more than one in five of inmates Whoa. in jails. I think we can kind of guess where those policies came from. Yes. <laughs> it results in so many young adults in, in, in jail, but it is a, a catastrophic outcome for young adults to be in a facility where uh, they have their, the rest of their lives sabotaged. So if young people get into trouble, th- there must be better ways to deal with it than, you know, getting tough on crime and, you know, uh, putting a, a sentencing as adults. Uh, and I'm, you've looked into uh, various... Uh, programs that uh, that do a better job at, uh, uh, you know, uh, stopping a, a re-offense? 
Yes, the CASES program that I mentioned a little bit earlier in the program is an outstanding example of the kind of diversion program that can make a difference with a young person who's made a mistake. And they really only work with nonviolent offenders. Uh Okay, so we're not talking about people who've been charged with murder or something like that. These are, you know, simple possession of marijuana, that kind of thing. There's no reason to lock up a 16-year-old who's got a little bit of pot for an extended period of time. There are other efforts such as, in far too many states, there are laws that automatically send a 16- or 17-year-old to adult jail. Uh, New Hampshire is actually one of those states that has done a good thing of um, repealing these kinds of laws that send 16-, 17-year-olds. So is Louisiana um, and even Mississippi. There's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, There are increasing initiatives to try to have juvenile detention alternatives initiatives in a lot of cities and states. But you still have these continuing problems with judges having the uh, freedom to send whomever they want to an adult court. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of states, you have prosecutors who have full discretion to decide to send somebody to adult court without regard to extenuating Mm -hmm. circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, and that that boosts their career, I suppose, at the huge expense. Right, to be tough. Oh, my God. Right. Now, what about the military as an option? This age group has always been relied on as a a source to feed the military. What about that quite traditional option for addressing disconnectedness? Um, There is a phenomenal program that's associated with the National Guard, uh, the National Guard Challenge Program, that is a, a state-federal partnership that operates in you know, about 30-odd states, that is a residential program for high school dropouts. Uh, what young people do is um, enroll in the program for a period of some months, live in the barracks. Uh, they develop very close relationships with their cadres, the, the supervisors and other cadets around them. They finish their GED. They got job training. They get a fair amount of follow-up support. There have been evaluations about the National Guard Challenge Program that have shown mm. that the earnings of people who graduated, um, their attachment to the workforce has improved. But again, you know, this program doesn't reach nearly as many people right. as it should, right. and not enough young people know about National Guard Challenge as an option for them. And sometimes states are not as eager <laughs> to put funding into this kind of program as well with many state budgets being as tight as they are. Mm-hmm. This is one of those programs that may not be high on the priority list but should be a little bit higher. Ah, yes. Nothing like short-term thinking. Phew, exactly. We never look long-term. It's it's so frustrating, I must say, but it's easier when it's staring you right in the face and, you know, uh, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and all that. And this has been sort of silent for a long time. But you, 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 you profiled a number of exemplary programs that are working to help people in these difficult circumstances. Tell us about Second Story in Northern Virginia. How did that help, for example, Carla move from homelessness to self-sufficiency? So Carla is a young woman I met after she had um, gone through Second Story's program. Second Story is a what's called a transitional housing program. It's located in Fairfax County, of Virginia, and they are essentially a homeless shelter for young moms and expecting moms. Um, what they do is that they provide a place to stay, 
They provide mental health services. They connect people to job training opportunities. They help people finish school. They did all of these things for Carla, who was about 15 when she got pregnant the first time, kicked out of her house, was homeless, was living on the floor of her boyfriend's mom's house, Mm. uh, which which she said was infested with bud bugs, and Mm. she was talking about these just horrific experiences that she had. And it really, she needed an organization like Second Story to give her some stability. And she was with the program for four years. When she came out, she had enough money to put down a down payment on a small condo, which is where she lives now with her two sons. She's in a stable relationship. She has a great job with a defense contractor in Mm -hmm. Fairfax County. Mm -hmm. And when I met her, she was solidly a middle-class mom. (laughs) And she credited her turnaround from a 15-year-old homeless teen to a young woman in her mid-20s with a full-time job, a home, and a stable relationship and two boys to what this program had done for her. Second Story is the only homeless shelter for young teens left in Fairfax County because of budget cuts. Brilliant. So if you treat young people as, you know, unwanted trash, you know, how much are they going to be motivated to contribute and, and, you know, believe in themselves? And and, and as you talk about, you know, I thought it was, was interesting, you know, through the early to mid 20th century, I believe, you know, there was a lot of, it was widely recognized that early childhood is a critical development period in children's lives. As a parent, I learned that because adolescent brains are still developing until about age 25, that marijuana at this age should be highly discouraged because the brains are still developing. Yeah, yes. Recognizing the brains are still developing, tell us if you would please about recent developments in neuroscience that may lay the groundwork and boost awareness for public policy focused on and thus helping emerging adults during this particular uh, age period, during their transition to independence. Yes, this, these new developments in neuroscience, you mentioned, Bert, are a big reason why young adulthood has become so important. We talked a little bit earlier about this sociological recognition of emerging adulthood. Uh, that's Jeffrey Arnett's phrase as a phenomenon where young people are using their time for exploration, careers, you know, zigzag paths, as it were, as they say in the book, to um, who they are. But what we've also discovered, according to neuroscientists over the past couple decades, is that the plasticity of the brain, that's why early childhood is so important. There are all these neural connections that are forming. That's why, you know, every parent buys baby Einstein toys and tries to talk to their child and read to their child as much as possible to form those neural connections. That process is also happening between the ages of 16 and 25. So there's enormous physiological capacity for learning, for development. The frontal lobes of someone's brain, where like judgment, critical analysis, thinking, there's a reason why teenagers and young adults are impulsive, because they physiologically are incapable of making the kind of rational decisions that a fully formed adult can make. That's not all done until 25. So this insight that the brain is still developing in those crucial years means a couple things. It means that it's a second chance to reach someone who may not have had that early childhood opportunity. It's a second chance to reach them and help them develop and learn and reach their full potential. It also means that we're wasting those years 
for young adults who are disconnected. If we throw away those years, those opportunities for those young adults, then you really have closed the door on their opportunity to thrive. Wow. As, as a, a parent, I can assure you that uh, I should recognize more often that a uh, young woman who's 19 years old isn't fully mature yet, and her impulsivity is part of the process. It's frustrating yeah. sometimes as an adult. It, it, it is. It is. And, you know, the thing is that, you know, we do recognize it to some extent. I think we, we have begun to kind of infantilize in some ways young adults who are middle class and upper middle class. But there's a double standard. Mm. We, you know, we give a lot of leeway to more affluent young adults who make mistakes, give them up oh, sure. opportunities to pick themselves up, yes. you know, come back and live in a basement and hold up for a while and then get them back out there in the world and kind of help them out. But we adultify uh, young adults who are mm. low-income, and especially low-income adult, young adults of color. That's why we're so willing to throw them in a jail cell and, you know, throw away the key uh, because we have this double standard. Even as adulthood is equally important for all young adults, the standard is much higher for certain folks than it is for others. And that's one of the things I think needs to change in terms of creating more opportunities for young, every young person needs a second chance. Wow, that is for sure. It's it's so always been hard, but it's it's harder now because I mean the world is changing really really fast, and of course nowadays they have the whole, you know, their electronic gizmo in their hand all the time. Right. But that's a whole other <laughs> subject. Uh, it, yes, that's one of the ironies of modern life, right? We're connected in so many ways, but disconnected <laughs> in others when it comes to human contact and uh, the kind of connections that really matter. And I th- I'm guessing that a lot of that uh, uh, you know iPhone connection all the time is out of this very deep desire to feel connected, looking for some connection. But boy, it is, you know, having it electronically versus real, it's a huge difference. But again, that's sort of a different topic. Now, it's it's far, this problem of uh, abandoned, disconnected youth is, is far from being widely recognized as yet. What would it take for us to put solving the problem on disconnection on the national agenda? What are some policy suggestions that might actually be cost-saving? You've touched on a few. Yes, so the the last part of the book has uh, seven steps to uh, addressing the problem. And the first is simply to count, to measure the problem. Let's count the number of disconnected youth so they are no longer an invisible population. It's crazy that we have to rely on nonprofit organizations to provide us with this data about this incredibly um, important subset of Americans who are being left behind. We do need to, number two, we need to invest a lot more in the programs that work, and we do know what those programs are. Uh, There's lots of research about um, what's there. I'm not going to run into all seven steps, but I think the most important, actually, is that we bring young adults into this conversation and listen to them. So much of what we think about young adults is based on misperceptions or stereotypes or judgment. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do in the book is to bring in as many mini-profiles and as much of their voice as possible so it becomes more clear that these are, you know, Americans, young Americans with big dreams for themselves, who work really hard, who try really hard, um, but simply aren't there yet. They don't have the structure and support that they need to get past the barriers in their life, and they shouldn't be expected to because they're kids. 
And we do have very high demands and expectations on our kids. I wonder if some of that might be, frankly, unrealistic. I, you know, I hate to think that, you know, we got to cut that back, but I wonder about that. Your thoughts? Um, yeah, we, we, we do. And the expectations, you know, again, kind of vary depending upon who it is we're talking about, right? And those expectations might be rooted in misperceptions about why young people behave the way right, they do. Right. Um, the lesson here is that everyone needs to have a little bit more slack. Everyone needs to have a little bit more support. Mentorship and caring adults really matter in the lives of people who are technically adults, legally might be adults, but developmentally still have a long way to go and need a lot more help than young people did maybe a generation ago Mm -hmm. to get their financial security and their careers off to a solid start. And in a highly politicized, highly divided society, I I wonder about, what are your hopes of of such policy suggestions having widespread support from both Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives? I, I am optimistic. Good. Because this is actually a problem that cuts across uh, all young people uh, and across all geographies. And the rural crisis in particular is one that I believe really should resonate with conservatives oh, as well. Yes. We have a serious problem of regional inequality. The election in 2016 made it very clear, I think, that there are... Uh, huge divergence in the haves and have-nots when it comes to regions and states and parts of the country. And what's happening with young adults is kind of canary in the coal mine. It's symptomatic of these bigger trends that are going to threaten to pull the country apart. I really want to believe that there are enough well-meaning people on both sides of the aisle, party leadership uh, set aside, (laughs) that are interested in policies that are going to re-knit the fabric of the country together in such a way that the future of our economy, young people, all have more chances to succeed and greater chances to get ahead compared to generations today. You're talking about real national security. What a concept. My goodness. We can do it. We can do it. it. Investing appropriately, not, you know, stupidly spending money, but investing it for our future, thinking a little bit long-term. The book is called Abandoned, and it's a very interesting cover. It has uh, sort of a, a side of a young person. Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. And Kim, thanks so much for being with us today, and I do appreciate your optimism. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Is not.